Hear that? It's the sound of you catching up on all the latest and greatest fintech news, trends, and updates thanks to Streetworthy, Yield Street's bi-weekly newsletter. Stay in the know with CEO Melinda Mahiri as he takes a closer look at what's happening in the fintech space, then breaks down what each story could mean for investors like you. Give your portfolio the edge it deserves and subscribe to Streetworthy on LinkedIn today. Welcome to The Yield, the official podcast of Yield Street. Every week, we bring you the latest market insights across our asset classes and products from subject matter experts. Our aim is to break the outdated mold of investing and help you add financial fuel to your ambitions through innovative investing products and strategies, typically unavailable to most investors. Realize your next level with The Yield. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. The views you are about to hear do not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street. This podcast is intended to be strictly informational and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a research report, investment advice, or the offer or sale of securities or any investment product. Now, let's get into the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Yield Street webinar. Be sure to visit www.yieldstreet.com to learn more about our offerings and sign up to get our latest updates. Thanks so much for taking time today out of your very busy schedules. We're going to be talking a little bit about the recent trends in con the consumer lending market and how the pandemic might have affected some of those behaviors. The structure of our conversation will be candid and forum-like, so I encourage you to drop your questions into the Q&A box. If we don't have time to get to them today, we'll do our best, but we'll be happy to answer them shortly after the webinar via email. In case we haven't met before, I'm Barbara Anderson. I'm Senior Director and Head of Underwriting for Yield Street's Private Business Credit Unit. I'm here today with, with William Price, Executive Director of Hillco Global. For those of you that are not familiar with Hillco Global, it's a privately held diversified financial services company and is the authority on maximizing the value of assets for both healthy and distressed companies. Hillco has a 30-year track record of acting as advisor, agent, and investor in many, many transactions around the globe. Hillco Global provides their clients with strategic insight and advice and in many instances, the capital required to complete transactions. Hilco is based in Northbrook, Illinois. They have over 640 professionals operating in five continents. Welcome, Bill. It's nice to have you here today. Hi, Barbara, and thanks everybody for having me. Appreciate it. As uh, Barbara mentioned, I am an executive director and specialty finance market lead of Hilco. My team performs ABL, retail, and specialty finance diligence projects, ranging from field exam to collateral liquidity and collectability analysis. We tailor our work to our clients' specific interests and requirements. Awesome. Well, let's dive right in. Pre-COVID, there were a lot of issues or concerns surrounding subprime borrowers. And what I'd like to start out with is talking a little bit about what a subprime borrower is. So based on FICO scores, which range from 400 to 800, the subprime level typically starts around 650. 
or so. 650 and below is considered subprime. So Bill, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what we saw pre-pandemic in the behavior of these subprime borrowers? Sure. I guess before we start into that, maybe it makes a little bit of sense to uh, jump into what those FICO scores are and, and really what is a, a subprime borrower. Um, you know, you say that the uh, subprime borrower starts around 650, and that number is, is bounced around quite a bit in recent times. And it really depends on who you're asking. Could be a 650, could be a 670, could be a 700. And it all depends on what the market segment is, in industry segment is, and honestly, whether it's secured or, or unsecured lending. And that subprime borrower really starts at different spots. But anyway, key metric of a subprime borrower is, is that FICO score band. And, uh, you know, maybe a unique proprietary score for whoever a lender is to determine whether a borrower is a subprime borrower or not. Usually you're looking at alternative credit bureau statistics to generate that proprietary scoring um, to figure out, you know, what you want to lend to a subprime borrower. You know, things like uh, repayment history, you know, uh, what kind of what kind of repayment history a borrower has on their credit report, different trades report to the credit bureaus on the repayment history of a, an, a consumer. And that all gets wrapped up into a score and, and uh, then we determine who's subprime and not. In terms of run rate, I don't know if you wanna jump into run, you know, the run rate, the uh, statistics of subprime consumers, or if we wanna stick with talking uh, sure. Let's talk a little bit about the types of things we look look at, delinquencies, losses, run rates, roll rates. Talk a little bit about, you know, how we assess portfolios of subprime borrowers. Sure. So a couple of the key metrics that we look for, other than just your proprietary score or a, uh, a FICO score, is like you had mentioned, the run rate of a portfolio or a collective of borrowers and that those receivables. A roll forward is a really good example. And the roll forward is simply the beginning of period balance, could be the beginning of a month, beginning of the year, plus your new business, new receivables, minus your cash payments, customer payments, minus your write downs, minus charge offs, and then that all equals an ending period balance. And that quote unquote, rolls to the next period. And you can get a really good sense for the run rate of how a portfolio is performing as long as that data is true and accurate. A statistic that, that uh, institutional investors like banks and non-banking institutions like to look at here is really the rate of loss over time. And you could look at that in a trailing 12, trailing six months, you know, just a trailing period to get a sense for that run rate of the portfolio. So you wanna figure out of all the dollars that are liquidating or going away from your portfolio, what percentage of that is loss versus, right. or not just loss, but uh, anything else versus actual cash. And as a lender, it's the actual cash that's paying, back, paying down the portfolio. And that's what you're interested in is the collectability of that portfolio. Well, and it, it, that's right. And it's actual cash that pays your loan back, right? Absolutely. So, so, you know so your ratio, you're good. 
right? Your portfolio may be decreasing, but if it's decreasing because of charge-offs, your loan is not getting paid back. So right. that's that's a very, very key metric that we all look at. So, so now, so do you see a difference between subprime secured lending and and subprime unsecured lending, right? Because we, we do a lot in both. Subprime secured lending might be more of your auto subprime auto loans, uh, et cetera. And then your your unsecured would be more retail installment where you're buying furniture or jewelry or appliances, things that or medical treatments these days too are financed, you know, over over time. So, you know, not likely to be repossessed, no real collateral value there underlying those loans. So do you see a distinct performance difference between the secured subprime versus the unsecured subprime? Oh, Barbara, no question. In the secured subprime world, a lender has an asset that is able to be repossessed and liquidated, right? So there is underlying value. There's really no question that the ability of the lender to repossess an item increases the percentage of collectability. In the unsecured subprime space specifically, there are different tactics utilized, and those different tactics could be utilized at different intervals and uh, different uh, strengths to help convince that subprime borrower to continue paying. You know, especially during uh, the COVID period, we're talking about things like deferments and extensions and anything to sort of keep that subprime borrower paying, uh, reduce payments for a little while. Sometimes those can be contractual and other times not. Absolutely. Now, you know, what's interesting in my experience, I have found the performance across subprime borrowers within particular portfolios. As you said, every lender is a little different. They have their own unique underwriting criteria. They use FICO score, yes, but they each have their secret sauce that may make their performance a little better, a little worse than some of their competitors. But I have found better or worse, the performance is pretty much you know, statistical, right? It doesn't swing in, in wide variances one way or the other in general. But along comes a pandemic, for example. And whoever thought we would have spent the last year hunkered down in our dining room or our basements or you know, wherever we've decided to, to ride this pandemic out, right? So, so what have you seen in the, in the pandemic world that has really surprised you about the performance of these subprime borrowers? Well, it's interesting, Barbara. The peak pandemic was extremely surprising to me. Heading into the shutdowns that occurred, I would have thought that we were looking at another large recessionary period, subprime segment included. But if we look back on what we've seen over the trailing 12 months or so, logically, the strong subprime borrower performance that we've seen actually in, this, in many segments seems to make sense. The borrowers in most cases have been granted assistance in some fashion, right? Most notably government assistance like the increases in unemployment and the rounds of stimulus and the increased options to be able to defer or reduce costs when requested, like your rent, mortgage, student loan, and other debts. If we combine that assistance with the fact that there 
have been a reduced number of places to go and spend money, especially places where that money might evaporate rather quickly, say maybe at a casino bar or sporting event, the recent performance does seem to make sense, doesn't it? It sure does. Now, now for those of you that are just listening, if, if you could take a quick peek at your screen, I pulled up a chart for the, the auto loan segment. And, and what's interesting, I always say a picture is worth a thousand words, right? What's interesting about this chart is you can see this shows prime and subprime borrowers on, on one chart. The light blue is the prime. The dark blue is the, is the subprime. Yellow is modified subprime. So customers that might have had a deferral or a deferment or a delay or, or whatever. But if you, if you look at net losses on this chart, this is a net loss chart. Look at 2020. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> it drops off a cliff. I mean, we, in 20 years, we have not seen number. This chart is 10, but you know, in, in 20 years, we have not seen numbers that look like quite like that. So the next chart that we have is a delinquency chart and it looks very much the same. We'll get that, that up here in a minute, but it's the same concept where we were kind of going along, going along, going along, prime and subprime or trailing together pretty well. And then, you know, as a delinquency, it drops off a cliff. People are absolutely paying their bills right now. Subprime borrowers don't have other demands on their cash. And they're using those funds to pay their obligations off. And you know what? That's important because from the first chart that we had on there with, with FICO scores, a portion of the FICO scores payment history. So continuing to make your payments currently on time. Another portion of the FICO score is the percentage of debt that you have. So if you have a credit card with a $1,000 credit limit, and you have more than 50% of it outstanding, that's a ding on your credit score. If you can pay that credit card down to $400, now you're starting to repair your credit. And guess what? Your FICO score starts going up. You're paying down your debts, you're paying down your debt relative to your credit limits, you're paying on time. All of these things go toward improving FICO scores. So the, Barbara, the, that, that my team has seen that uh, a bunch is uh, payoffs and repayments are just astronomical. And there's a, uh, uh, there's a huge um, amount of need uh, for additional paper for consumer lenders, you know, because they're, they've got, they're flush with cash and they're looking for, uh, uh, they're looking for new business. Right. So that brings me to my next question. So we've had multiple rounds of stimulus. $1,400 checks are going out, you know, as we speak. Student loans are deferred through, student loan payments are deferred through September. There are a lot of, there's a lot of cash flooding the zone. So my next question to you is to dust off that crystal ball again and tell me, do you think, the good times continue to roll in 2021? Or are we headed to a cash crunch when the cash high wears off? Well, 
given what I expected going into the shutdowns and what we've ultimately seen, I've definitely learned to question my ability to read a crystal ball. <laughs> However, my thought is that we're likely to see a mixed bag here. On one point, I'd like to just call um, a little bit of attention to the fact that that cliff that we're seeing in terms of the delinquency and net loss rate partially can be attributed to some of those assistance programs, right? Where right. we're deferring, we're deferring or giving extension programs. So delinquency and charge off uh, or net loss as we, as we see in the standard pours graph here might be a little light, but anyway, on, on one hand, I think the cash high will wear off as you say, and that's likely to substantially reduce the amount of the early repayments and the payoffs of debt that we were just talking about. On the other hand, as all places of business hopefully finish getting back to full capacity, the subprime borrower should be back to what I might refer to as a pre-pandemic performance period. I actually um, agree with that. You know, what's, what's interesting is there have been some uh, statistics come out in the, in the retail space recently. And as you know, retail comprises 70% of economic growth. It is a very important indicator of how you know, GDP is ultimately going to, to come out over the course of a, of a year. So retail is, is very important. And I have another chart that's, that's coming up here in a second on, on retail sales, but the fourth quarter was disappointing. The fourth quarter, the summer was better than accept, than uh, expected, and the fourth quarter was disappointing. Now there was a spike in in January, um, which offset that a little bit, but then February was down again. So year over year, we're down three percent in sales in February, but we're up six point three percent for the year. Now, the National Retail Federation for 2021 is expecting retail growth of six and a half to eight and a half percent. That's four point three trillion dollars of retail spend. Does that include online sales or is that just a brick and mortar? That includes a 15 to 20 percent increase in online sales as well. You know, big, big numbers forecasted for 2021. And, you know, the thinking is as more and more people get vaccinated and more and more businesses open, there is going to be that pent up, you know, demand. Now, my question to you, I want to turn the the, the attention a little bit now to, to retail. You know, can retailers wait that long? Because Remember, they've got a lot of fixed overhead, particularly the brick and mortar locations. A lot of fixed overhead, didn't have the revenues they anticipated, and we're waiting, waiting, waiting to get those consumers into the stores. Do we think that the retailers are going to have enough staying power to get to maybe the third and fourth quarter where customers return to the stores? Or are we going to face a crisis among store-based retailers? And we might be seeing that already. I mean, Hilco is known for their work in the retail space. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. 
no question that the old brick and mortar way of doing business is, had already been feeling a struggle pre-pandemic. And as you said, the overhead costs don't really change all that much. You know, there's assistance programs like the PPP and, and other things that are the government's doing, the SBAs, and it, that help the smaller uh, retailers, right? And I think it really depends on the size of the retailer and the space and their ability to potentially um, go multi-channel or not. Are they able to do the online sale thing or are they just plain brick and mortar? And, uh, you know, I would be a little worried about just your plain and simple brick and mortar. Yeah, I agree. I think I think we're going to see some some retailers uh, look to downsize, restructure, really focus on on their most profitable locations and exit those that are, you know, shall we say a little bit on the on the bubble. Now, in terms of consumer finance, we have store-based consumer finance companies that are typically located, you know, near your grocery store and your dry cleaner and, you know, where, where you go most often and you can go in and get a, 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 a loan for a purchase or just a, just an installment loan for cash flow reasons. Right. So those you know, store-based retailers have seen, retailers of consumer loans have seen a fall off in that foot traffic. And a number of them have, you know, converted to online lending. Can you lend online as well as you can lend in person? Well, there's two different schools of thought there. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I could probably talk about that for uh, uh, an hour period. But, you know, there's, there's different ways of underwriting the consumer. And one is to, you know, touch and feel, uh, you know, and be able to understand, you know, look somebody in the eye and figure out whether they're going to be a, a repaying customer along with those attributes that we just talked about in credit bureau statistics or proprietary scoring statistics, things that you'll get from that credit bureau report or other information that you're requiring with somebody that's just walking down the street, walks in and, and needs, needs uh, some cash. Now online, it's a lot less personal where you're going to just have the statistics that can be readily pulled, like your credit bureau statistics, your FICO score, uh, your ability to repay either installment or revolving lines of credit and uh, trades. And all that bubbles up to figuring out or determining uh, the propensity of that consumer to repay whatever amount of money that that they're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 how about the the issue or the risk of of fraud? You know, there there. You know, if you have someone sitting in front of you at a at a at a desk where you're actually able to to look them in the eye, check their IDs, do all the things that you'd normally that you'd normally do online, a little less you know, visible. So when you look at online lenders versus store-based lenders, do you see a difference in those loss statistics just based on the inability to do as good a job validating who those consumers are? Well, it depends because there are different ways to make sure that you're putting it in the box, so to speak. You know, you're, you're fencing the, the underwriting procedures to make sure that there is no fraud. 
The issue is, is that there's always going to be somebody that's going to try and, and, and get something through that, that they aren't who they say they are. But as long as the procedures are, are sound and they've got the correct, they've got the correct documentation and checks, whether it be online and in person, I think that uh, the propensity for fraud is, isn't that much greater on, online if you're doing the right things. So, Bill, talk to me a little bit about, you know, how you look at uh, a particular lender's ability to follow their own rules. What what types of of things do you look at to make sure that they're following their own credit procedures and and doing things the way consistently so that the performance that we see continues to be consistent, right? Because when you see inconsistent performance, probably means there was a change somewhere along the along the way. No so question. how do you ensure compliance with, you know, companies are complying with their own rules? Well, it's a, it's a great question. And, you know, a lender uh, is basically underwriting their loan to the underwriting standard, standards of the borrower in that case. Right. So having somebody or a third party or, uh, you know, uh, somebody on, on site at the lender to go and look at the underwriting procedures, read the credit policy, looking at those, uh, the documentation files, they'll, they'll call them deal jackets or underwriting files. Those are the things that we're checking to make sure that they're following all of the policies and procedures that they have set forth for their underwriting criteria. And statistics play a big, big role in this too, Barbara, especially things like you're, you're familiar with static pool. You know, I know we're probably running up against time here a little bit, but we could talk for hours about static origination pool and what that shows you in terms of the fluctuations of potentially underwriting criteria and whether especially those online retailers or online uh, lenders are going to, we'll call it dial back the underwriting procedures or dial up the underwriting procedures. You can really see that in the statistics and then you do your testing, your documentation testing, and making sure that everything's executed properly. They're getting all, they being the, uh, the lenders are, are getting all the documentation that they should be, you know, and, and again, fencing around those policies to make sure that they're complying with what you think that they're doing. Well, that, you know, vintage analysis and strat analysis is, is very important. And I think it will become more important as we come out of the pandemic, because one thing to watch is while borrowers are paying down their debts and not necessarily going out to borrow more money, are the online lenders or the store-based lenders adjusting those requirements here, here or there to try to generate that volume that they need. And it's then, extremely likely. And then what happens is you see, you know, the, the, the swing back effect. We have those delinquencies and losses coming down on a sharp curve, and they can just as easily go back up on a on a steep curve if the wrong adjustment was was made to book all the, the, to the book more the reason. Volume. 
all the more reason, Barbara, to have your finger on the pulse and, and understand what it is that can and cannot happen, who can and cannot pull those levers and chains and make those adjustments. But there's a way to do it, right? I mean, there's Absolutely. a way to there's a way to block and tackle for the risk of you know changing underwriting requirements. You know, first off, you can see it in the numbers, and if you're paying attention, you could see it early and often. No, so question. there's an immediate reaction that that you can that you can have there, and then commensurately, you know, make adjustments in your underwriting as a lender. So it's not that, you know, borrowers have an ability to take funds and go play in the street. You know, there, there is an ability to watch and monitor and there's good statistics and good reporting and good ways to do that. Right. Absolutely. This is a perfect time for the shameless plug of a, uh, of a, a potential diligence or field exam to have that third party professional go in on a routine basis or periodic basis to actually help you have that finger on the pulse of all those statistics and help you determine what are the appropriate statistics to be able to monitor, to catch, you know, those sorts of swings on the upswing or downswing to understand really what's going on. Well, Bill, I think we've either mesmerized our audience or or answered all their questions because I don't I don't really see anything in the chat box. So at this time, I think we'll make it a wrap. And we certainly appreciate you being here. It was wonderful having you as our guest. It we was hope my that pleasure, Barbara. Thank you so much for having me. Very good. We hope our audience learned a little something about consumer finance and the subprime borrower. And we'll keep watching and waiting and updating you all on the performance as we go forward. Thanks everyone for being here. Thank you, Bill. Take care. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Yield. For the latest updates on the alternative investing space, go to yieldstreet.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed the show, feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts as this will help other investors like yourself find our show. If you have any questions, please visit us at yieldstreet.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. The Yield Street podcast you just heard only reflects the opinions of the host, who is an associated person of Yield Street and does not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street or any of its affiliates or other associates. The podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any security and is not an offer or sale of any securities or investment product. The podcast is also not a research report and is not intended to be and should not be construed as investment advice. Support for this podcast comes from Yield Street. Trying to time the stock market can lead to regret. At Yield Street, our alternative investments are designed to create predictable secondary income streams, providing you with tools to help put your money to work immediately. These investments in asset classes like art, real estate, and legal finance typically have low correlation with the stock market and target annual yields up to 7 to 10%. Welcome to the next generation of investing. Welcome to Yield Street. Sign up today at yieldstreet.com.